Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her, to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman is willing to live with her, with And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Um, wonder what you were thinking when that passage was read, or perhaps if you read it earlier in the week in, uh, in preparation for today. Um, some blushes, some discomfort, some tricky things. Well, we live in a world, uh, a society, a culture, which, uh, is in, which is confused in so many ways, don't we? And uh, I think you'll probably agree with me that one of the places we see that confusion is in the area of marriage, sex, of sexuality. I don't think any of us would argue with that. The world is full of, frankly, crazy ideas about sex, about marriage. And as Christians, we're so often criticized in this area, aren't we? We're told uh, the Bible is a, a killjoy, that we have prudish, backward, restrictive views of these things. We're told Christianity is an anti-sex religion. But nothing could be further from the truth. The the Bible upholds a wonderful, beautiful vision of sex and of marriage. And we'll see that in the passage in just a moment. Before we get into the passage itself, though, there's some background uh, that I think will be helpful. You'll remember that Corinth was, for its time, a modern, vibrant, a prosperous, a booming city, a major port on the European-Asian trade route of the of the Roman Empire. The most who lived there were Greeks and Romans, Gentiles, some Jewish refugees. We met some earlier, Aquila and Priscilla, for example, 
but mostly Gentiles, Greeks and Romans. So people in the Corinthian church, at least many, perhaps most of them, didn't have a Jewish background. They didn't have an Old Testament view of marriage, of sex, of divorce. They had a Greco-Roman view of these things. And in particular, they would have been influenced by two things. On the one hand, Roman marital practice, and on the other hand, Greek and Roman philosophy, ideas about sex. So a brief comment on each of those two things, and then we'll move on to the text itself. First, about Roman marital practice. Well, the thing is that the Roman Empire at the time didn't have uniform marriage law. For one thing, there were many slaves in the empire, and probably a good number of these believers in the Corinthian church were slaves. Now, marriage, as we would understand it, didn't even really exist for slaves. A slave owner could allow what was called, forgive me, this is a difficult word to pronounce, contubernium, literally tent companionship. In other words, just living together by permission of the slave owner. There was no ceremony. It had no legal status. It was just the slave owner chose, you may live with you, that's that. But at any point, if they wanted to, they could put an end to it. The slave owner may have wanted the male or female slave for themselves, or they may have wanted to sell them or assign them to some other responsibility. Well, then that was it. That relationship was over. And it wouldn't have been uncommon for slaves in that situation to possibly have lived through multiple relationships of that sort over time as their owners or masters moved them around. But the issue wasn't limited only to slaves. For common people, there was a custom called usus. It was basically a common law convention that said that if a man and a woman lived together for a year, they became husband and wife. Another practice was called Coemptio in manum, marriage by sale. Essentially, you could go to a man who needed money and buy his daughter. Not marriage as we understand it. And of course, in the upper classes, the social elites, many, if not most, marriages were arranged. They had more to do with securing social or political or economic favor. Now, I give my daughter to your son and essentially buy your alliance. This it's a trade, my daughter or my son, for your political or economic connections to advance the prestige of my family. And more than that, men of that social class often had more than one wife. One was the kitchen wife, one was the cleaning wife, one was the household administration wife, and so on. And then in addition, he may have had as many concubines as he felt he needed and as he could afford to satisfy his sexual appetites. Again, not really marriage as we understand it. So against this background, these new believers in the city of Corinth had been taught something of God's ways. One man, one woman, for life, in a true and a public covenant, a commitment before God and before others. But you can understand that's a really difficult transition to make. They've come from a different world, and they're getting, trying to get used to this, but they're getting things wrong, they're getting confused, they're not exactly sure how these principles apply to different situations. So they write to Paul to ask for help. We see that in verse 1 of this passage. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul says, now for all their other failings, the Corinthians at least had the sense to ask for help. They realized they weren't really getting this right, and they needed help. 
And so Paul replies, uh, and that's what goes on in this first section of chapter 7. And you'll see the first thing Paul says um, is to, in fact, quote back to them something that they said. It's not good. It's, uh, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships, relations, beg your pardon, with a woman. Now, what's that all about? Well, that's the second background thing you need to know before we get into the passage. These believers wouldn't only have been influenced by Roman marital practice, but also by Roman and Greek philosophy. Now, some schools of Greek and Roman philosophy taught that the human body was essentially a dirty thing, a lesser thing. The life of the mind was what mattered. But all appetites and needs of the body must be suppressed, ignored, held down, deny all fleshly pleasures, food, comfort, sex. They're all bad. That's what's behind what they're suggesting in verse 1. To be truly spiritual, some of the Corinthians are proposing. Note, this is not what Paul is saying. It's what some of the Corinthians are proposing. To be really spiritually advanced, we mustn't have sex. Even in marriage, we must deny all physical bodily desires. So, lots of confusion in the church about sex, about marriage, and about how sex and marriage relate to true spirituality. And that's what Paul's addressing in this passage. God's good gift of sex, celibacy, marriage, and singleness. And we're going to deal with this in two parts. Uh, In part one, we're going to look at five things. Five things Paul has to say about the good gifts God has given. Five things about sex, marriage, singleness, celibacy. Uh, And in part two, um, well, we'll get there when we get there. So I guess uh, part one, five things Paul teaches us about sex and about marriage. First, in in the first uh, six verses, sex in Christian marriage. Well, look with me, if you would, at verse 2. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, maybe you noticed, some of you will have noticed, that that wording I just read is not exactly what was read for us a few minutes ago. It might not be what your Bible says. I use the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. Uh, what was read for us was the NIV, the New International The NIV and the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, both translate this verse just a little differently than, at least to my knowledge, than I think every other English translation. They add, or they give the verse as, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. They add those two words. They make it explicit that Paul is talking about sex in marriage here. So the NIV does help us in a sense... You see, if you, if you hear it the way the ESV says it, and most other translations, they have it as, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Now you might think what he's saying is, each man um, should get married. He must have his own wife. Likewise, each woman must get married. She must have her own husband. So the NIV and the CSB do help us here. They add those words, sexual relations, to make it clear that Paul isn't saying you must all get married. What he's saying is, to those who are already married, married man, have sex with your own wife. Married woman, have sex with your own husband. 
He's talking about sex in marriage and very plainly just saying, do it. I wonder if Nike might owe Paul quite a lot of money for that. Just do it. But I wish, honestly, the NIV and the CSB hadn't added those extra words in. You see, now I'm being pedantic on detail here, but I hope in a moment you'll see why. We didn't really need those extra words to understand what he's saying. It's clear enough from the context. It's clear from his argument in verses 1 through 6 that that's what he's saying. And regrettably, having them there slightly shifts the emphasis. Now, listen closely to these two versions. Version number one, men have sexual relations with your wives. What must you have? Sexual relations. Do you hear it? Men have sexual relations with your wives. Women have sexual relations with your own husband. What must you have? Sexual relations. Yes, he goes on to say who who you must have it with, but what you must have is sexual relations. Now listen to version number two. Each man should have his wife. Each woman her husband. Do you hear the difference? Settle, what must you have? Men have your own wife. Women have your own husband. You hear the force of it. Men have your wife. Women have your husband. Have. The verb is to hold, to seize, even to possess. Not sexual relations with your wife or husband. That's right, that's correct. But it's too weak. Not merely engage in an activity with them, have them. In fact, in the original Greek, the force of it is even stronger. The the order of the words is actually, men, your own wife, have. Where does the idea that Christianity has prudish, insipid, almost embarrassed views about sex come from? It's certainly not from the Apostle Paul. I think it was Queen Victoria who famously instructed ladies of Britain, lie back and think of the empire. Paul will have none of that. Men have your wife. Women have your husband. Enjoy one another sexually in marriage. And often, verses 5 and 6, as a concession, he says. Do you see that in verse 6? As a concession as a concession to what they're proposing in verse 1. Remember, they live in a culture um, where some prominent views of spirituality taught that you must deny all bodily pleasures. Only enough food just to survive. There's certainly none that you enjoy. No comforts. Certainly no sex. Well, nonsense, says Paul. Have your wife. Have your husband. But... Very occasionally, when you set aside maybe a few days for prayer together, then for those two or three days, fine. Husbands and wives may agree together to abstain, but then come together again quickly, he says in verse 5. Verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her 
conjugal rights. Your translation might say, the husband should fulfill his marital, marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. So no ongoing withdrawal from sexual companionship. No. The spouse who deprives his or her partner from sexual intimacy is preparing the conditions for Satan to tempt the partner into, into sexual immorality. That's what he says in verses uh, 2 and 5. So one of the reasons Paul gives for healthy and frequent sexual enjoyment of one another in marriage is to guard against temptation. But it's not the only reason he gives. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body. Her husband does. Now, if Paul had stopped there, he would have been saying nothing more than the common view um, of much of the ancient world. The husband has authority over his wife, even over her body. But he carries on. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body. His wife does. Now, that would have hit the first century world like a hammer. A view of marriage which holds husband and wife in mutual submission to one another, each partner having authority over the other, even over the other's body, that would have stunned the first century world. But it should stun the 21st century world too. As much as the Christian view of husband and wife submitting to one another and of the husband being commanded to give to his wife her sexual rights to meet her sexual needs, so too Paul's teaching here confronts our view, or the view in our society at least, that virtually deifies the sexual autonomy of the individual. No sexual hierarchy, Paul says, but also no sexual autonomy. Husband and wife enjoying each other, mutually submitting to one another, each having authority over the other's body, each caring for the other's holiness by leaving no foothold for temptation, each having the other, each glorifying God by enjoying one of the purposes for which he created sex and ordained it between man and wife, pleasure. And so, husbands and wives... Glorify God in your bodies by giving yourselves to one another and by having each other in sexual companionship. Second point, verse 7. Just as Paul sets before us a glorious vision of sexual intimacy in marriage, so also he affirms the goodness and the dignity of singleness and celibacy. Verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. In other words, I wish all Christians were in control of their sexual appetites the way I am. But, still in verse 7, each has his own gift from God, one of this kind, one of another. It's the same word. It's the same word, in fact, that Paul will use later when we come to chapters 12 and thereabouts where he talks about spiritual gifts. It's a grace gift. The gift of control over one's sexual desires. And the chosen life of singleness is a grace gift from God. Now this culture that we live in, right here now in England in 2020, believes that human wholeness is only possible through sexual gratification. So many people today define themselves by their sexuality. But the Bible says differently. 
The Bible says a person is fully human because they were created in the image and the likeness of God. Meaning, you have value and significance before God. You are an image bearer, quite apart from your, your sexual expression. Sex is nat- natural and good and God-honoring in marriage between one man and one woman, but sex is not necessary to happiness. A person can live a full, blessed, rich, useful, meaningful, God-glorifying life without sex. It is good, it is not ultimate. Marriage is good, sex is good, singleness is good, celibacy is good. They are all precious gifts given according to the wisdom and the timing of the Lord for his glory and for our happiness. So those who choose a life of celibate singleness in a way stand as something of sort of prophetic lighthouses to our culture to our sex-mad culture, saying, I don't need to be married to be whole. I don't need to have sex to be happy. My relationship with God is my wholeness and my satisfaction. I'm fulfilled in Christ, happy in the life he has called me to and gifted me to enjoy. Third point, verses 8 and 9, to widows and to widowers. Now, we don't know for sure, but there is a good chance that Paul had been married and the wife of his youth had died and he was now a widower. We can't prove that absolutely, but given that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, in all likelihood, he probably was married. But now he's a widower and so he says to others who have lost husband or wife, it's good to remain single as I am. Now, two important things to note there. First, verse 8 is saying something different to verse 7. In verse 7, he says, I wish all were as I am. Meaning, again, I wish all Christians were in control of their sexual appetites the way I am. But note in verse 8, he doesn't say, I wish all would remain single. He says, choosing to remain single is a good choice but so is choosing to get married again. He affirms individual choice. And very importantly, against the background of ancient culture, he affirms a woman's right to choose for herself whether to remarry or not. We must remember at this point in his ministry, Paul was convinced the Lord was going to return any day. And so with that time frame in mind, he says to widows and widowers, Choose carefully. The days are few. How best can you use the remaining time? Now that certainly um, colors the emphasis he puts on, puts on it. But we must also remember the days are long. That's why he says, if you're going to struggle with a life of singleness and a life of celibacy, it's good to marry. The days are short and one, on the one hand, but the days are long. Are you gifted to enjoy a life of singleness and celibacy? Is this the way the Lord has gifted you? If so, great, you're free to make that choice. But if not, great, you're free to marry again. Fourth point, Christians married to Christians, verses 10 and 11. To Christians married to Christians, Paul's charge, simply restating the command of Jesus 
That's what he means when he says, not I, but the Lord. He's basically just saying, I'm just repeating what Jesus already said. Stay married. It's that simple. Stay married. Don't get divorced. Now, as an aside, which I'm not going to go into today because it's not the emphasis of what Paul is saying here, but I do need to say that the Bible does recognize situations in which uh, divorce may happen. Three categories. First of all, in the case of adultery. Second, in the in the case of abandonment, which he comes on to, uh, we'll get there in a moment. And third, in situations of ongoing abuse. In fact, in the case of abuse, um, it's not just that there'd be no sin in separating and divorce, but in, depending on the situations, it may actually be the wise thing to do. But in the context of what's going on in Corinth, that's not really what Paul's talking about here. You remember back from verse 1, some of the Corinthian believers had bought into this lie that the pleasures of the body are to be denied. He said, uh, and he said to them, no, husbands, have your wife. Ladies, have your husband. He's told them to enjoy sexual companionship. Well, some of the Corinthians, it seems, have responded to this, saying, okay, well, if... If being married means that we must um, have sexual intimacy, then the only way I can advance in spirituality is then to get divorced so that I can continue to deny the pleasures and desires of my body. They're so trapped in this, in this lie that to avoid uh, what they see as something dirty that will defile them, they're saying, well, in that case, then we will get divorced. Paul's saying no. Christians married to Christians, stay married. Honor God in your marriage by enjoying sexual companionship together. Fifth point here, verses 12 through 16. For Christians married to others, that is, to unbelievers, to the rest, that is, Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, all that he means by that is that he's not repeating something Jesus had taught himself. Uh, in verse 10, he had repeated Jesus' teaching, um, uh, but Jesus didn't teach explicitly about Christians marrying non-Christians because, of course, that wasn't a situation that existed during the time of his earthly ministry. So Paul expands on what Jesus said, but that doesn't mean that his teaching is any less inspired or authoritative. It is. Paul's teaching as an inspired apostle is binding and authoritative. Now remember also that um, these were mostly Gentile, Greek and Roman that is, not Jewish, mostly Gentile new believers. Very few of them will have been saved for longer than two or maybe three years. And so inevitably some would be married to unbelievers. Now, that's the situation that Paul is talking into now. Now, they're starting to learn from the Old Testament. They're starting to hear about things like holiness laws, that some things are clean and unclean. They're starting to hear that Israel was commanded to stay separate. Israelites were commanded not to intermarry with other peoples. And so, quite rightly, they ask, but Paul, some of our husbands and wives haven't come to faith. They're still outside of the family of God. What, what do we do about that? Must we divorce them now? Must we stay separate? If we remain in that marriage, does it defile us? 
Does it make us unholy, unclean? No, says Paul, stay married. If your husband or your wife isn't a Christian believer, that doesn't make your marriage unclean. It doesn't make you unclean. It doesn't make your children unclean. It doesn't make your sexual relationship with them unclean. Unclean in the sense of what that meant to Old Testament Israel. In fact, Paul says, staying married, keeping the family together, brings your husband, your wife, your children within the influence of the gospel message. And by God's grace, perhaps they too will come to saving faith in Christ. If they want to separate, that is if your unbelieving husband or wife wants to separate. Remember at this time in the empire, the uh, Christians were, were viewed with real suspicion. This is a strange cult that believes in a crucified criminal. And it probably wasn't that uncommon, um, given the, the way the patronage networks worked and being a shame and honor society, it probably wasn't that uncommon that some spouses would have thought, I actually just, to stay in this association with somebody who believes this really strange thing, uh, I'd rather separate. And Paul is saying, well, if your unbelieving husband or wife wants to separate, you're not bound. You can let them go. No, there's no fault in that. But if they are willing to stay married to you, then you need not worry that your union, especially your sexual union, in any way makes you unholy. Now, uh, on to the second part, God's good gifts. Blood-bought, you'll see I've put up there. Now, I said earlier, um, the world is full of crazy ideas about sex, about marriage. But the world is also full of people whose deepest hurts are probably in the area of marriage or sex. People who have been deeply damaged. Possibly people who have been abused. And it's really important that we remember what Paul is doing here. You remember all through Corinthians, uh, there are five major sections. Well, there's, there's a greeting and a, and a saying goodbye at the end. And then there are five major sections. And in each of those sections, what Paul does is he says, here's something, some area of Christian life that you're getting wrong. You're not really understanding. Let me show you something of the gospel, some aspect of the gospel, and then through that lens of the gospel, look back at that issue and now see how to do that thing right. What is a right way to think about that thing? What's a right way to live? So in the first section, you recall, the issue was factionalism and one-upmanship and a kind of party spirit of I'm better than you because I'm a Paul guy or I'm a Peter guy or I'm a whatever. And Paul says to them, no, you, how, you can't live that way. If you understand the gospel of a crucified Savior and that we are called to a cross-shaped life, this kind of one-upmanship and factionalism just has no place. You can't square that with the gospel. Well, in this section... Um, Paul is dealing with wrong sexual practice and then he takes them to the gospel which is what uh, in this section what I think Bill preached two weeks ago um, and then he says now this is a right way to live in that area now the gospel truth at the heart of this section sexual practice is um, is that coming up? towards the end of chapter 6 you are not your own you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, on the one hand, uh, immoral indulgence, chapter 5, John preached about a month ago, immoral indulgence is out because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. But likewise, so is rejection of God's good design. That's also out. Because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the point here is that true Christian spirituality is an embodied spirituality. It's not just a life of ideas. It's not just grand theories and wonderful doctrines. It's real life in real flesh in our bodies. Now, it's one thing to say, here is a vision of Christian sexuality, of the goodness of sex in marriage, or of the goodness of celibacy and singleness. But we also need to realize that we are broken people living in a broken world. And I would bet in the gathering of us here this afternoon, just statistically speaking, apart from my knowledge of some of your stories, it is very, very likely in any gathering of this size there would be some who have experienced tremendous brokenness and suffering in this area. Perhaps sexual abuse. And for whom the idea of a healthy sexuality is not just difficult but painful. In addition to that, we live in a fallen world. Why would we think as Christians that sex, even in marriage, even knowing God's good design for it and his good intent for it, even knowing how strongly Paul says, husbands, have your wives. Wives, have your husbands. Even in marriage, why would we think that sexuality would escape the fallenness of the world? Even in marriage, it's not uncommon that husband and wife experience a difficult sexual relationship. And I don't want to embarrass anybody here. What I want to say is there is hope. Don't believe the lie of the devil. Husbands, wives, don't believe that if your sexual relationship is not what you hope it might be, that you are doomed to stay that way, that there is no hope for you, even in that area of your life, even in that most intimate, most private thing. The gospel comes there too. Because the gospel, you were bought with a price, your body too, not just your eternal salvation, but the eternal salvation of your body, which means that right now in this life, here today, it is the Lord's will, it is his pleasure that you experience the good he has designed for you the good gifts he wants to give to you. Now, we don't want to absolutize that, just like in every other area of life. We're not talking about perfection here on earth. But what I do mean is, if this is an area that, an area of hurt, perhaps an area of shame, perhaps an area of pain, the gospel, the gospel says, Jesus has bought your healing here too. Jesus has bought your healing here too. Now, 
I don't really want to go into more detail about what that might mean for different folks here from the front. What I do want to say is it would not surprise me in the least. In fact, it, it would surprise me the other way. It would surprise me tremendously if amongst us here um, there were none who experienced difficulty in this area. Um, don't be ashamed. Don't think you're alone. The fall, the brokenness of sin, the destruction of sin and death touches every area of our lives, including our most intimate relationship between husband and wife. And if that is your experience, you need to hear the gospel here. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. That means that your Father in Heaven wants you to know the pleasure of a healthy sexual relationship. And whatever the process might mean for you, um, from where you are, towards a healthy sexual relationship, um, your Father holds your hand. The Holy Spirit indwells you and will move you there. And patiently and gently, um, the Lord wants you to know his good gift in this area too. Christian, uh, Christian spirituality, true Christian spirituality, is embodied, it's enfleshed. It's not just ideas, it's not just textbooks, it's not just theories. It is living the life in our body, the good gifts that God desires to give us, the good that he has designed for us in the right places for which he has designed us. There is healing in the gospel, even for this. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray, and then I think John will come up and lead us in song. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father, John Piper rightly says we most glorify you when we are most satisfied in you. So Father, for us to glorify you in our bodies, part of what that means is to be satisfied in, to enjoy to experience the good that you have designed our bodies to experience, including sexual intimacy in marriage. And Father, I know that there are some here this afternoon who struggle in one way or another in this area. In fact, some who more than struggle. Some who have been deeply, deeply damaged. And Father, we just want to ask, I ask on behalf of all of us here, that you would come by your Spirit, you would apply the healing of the Gospel, even into this most intimate area of life, so that all your children might enjoy the good that you have not only designed for them, and given and ordained for them in marriage, but that you have bought for them at the cost of your son's blood on the cross. We cry out to you, Father, 
for healing in this area. In the name of our Savior, our precious Savior, who saves us totally, wholly, body and soul, forever. Amen.